Greetings, and welcome to Bird on a Wire, a podcast series presented by the Recombobulation Area and hosted by Lou Ann Bird, featuring conversations on hope, civility, and action. Thank you for joining us. My name is Dan Schaefer, and I'm the founder of the Recombobulation Area and the producer of this podcast series. For episode nine of Bird on a Wire, Lou Ann is joined by Nicole Otto. Nicole is a mental health counselor who works with children. In this episode, Luann and Nicole talked about some of the difficult realities young people face when it comes to challenges with mental health. There's a great quote that they reference that's actually come up more than once in this podcast series. It's from Desmond Tutu, and the quote is this. There comes a point where we need to stop just pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out why they're falling in. The lead sponsor for the Bird on a Wire podcast series is Civic Media, the fastest-growing hometown radio network in Wisconsin, broadcasting local news, talk, sports, music, and sensible commentary throughout the state. Visit civicmedia.us to find your local station and tune in to your community. Civic Media, hometown radio refreshed. Supporting sponsors for this series include Marianne Lubar and Marlene Ott. So, without further ado, here's Luann Bird. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bird on a Wire. This is episode number nine, and I'm here today. I'm Luann Bird, and I'm your host, and I'm here with Nicole Otto. Uh, Nicole is a wonderful young woman that I met on the campaign trail. I was out knocking on doors one day, and when I knocked on her door, she was busy at the moment and um, didn't have time to talk, but she was so excited to meet a candidate in her area because she really wanted to see someone, a Democrat, I believe, get elected. Mm-hmm. So she reached out to a friend of hers on the same street who happened to know me. And pretty soon I get this this message that Nicole Otto wants to meet you. So contact her. <laughs> so I did. So Nicole, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you were so excited, what you do, what you do. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm a mental health counselor. Um, I work in partly in the MPS schools, not as a school counselor, but as a partner. Um, And then I'm also a mental health counselor out in the community um, with an independent clinic. Um, I went to school at UW-Madison and then I got my master's at UW-Milwaukee. And I, you know, it's funny when you tell the story um, because I remember you knocking on the door and it had been, oh, it'd been a stressful week with my job and I was babysitting my parents' dogs and you knocked on my parents' um, my parents' front door and my parents' lovely Labradoodle likes to scream when people knock on the door and so I was, I was very agitated and I had to, you know, I wanted to talk to you but I was trying to get the dog in the house and I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to think I'm so rude. And I just, I was so excited to meet a Democratic candidate um, within our area. And I felt like it was so important that I, um, 
met you and talked to you and let you know that I actually am really supportive of you running and um, everything you believe in. And so, yeah, I talked to uh, Cheryl across the street trying to... Trying to... Cheryl Baker. She's <laughs> yeah. been very supportive. Mm-hmm. So tell me what it was you wanted to see happen. What change were you looking for? Why, why was a Democrat... What issues were important to you? I know that we talked mm-hmm. a lot about children and mental health and that, mm-hmm. and um, I'll let you tell more about that. Yeah, I, I, it's kind of a loaded question because I'm a, very passionate about a lot of the topics that you had covered and then even a lot of topics that you and I haven't even discussed yet. Um, I think I was really frustrated with how the last few years of politics had went. Um, I'm f- fairly young still. I mean, I'm 26 now. When you and I met, I think I was still, I was 25. And, um, you know, most of my cognizance in the political community has not been positive since, you know, I mean, since I was an undergrad, we had, you know, Trump, and then we had just the way that people had treated each other during those elections and afterwards, and then, you know, the repealing of Roe v. Wade and, I just, anything I could have done to help support, you know, not not necessarily just the Democratic community as a whole, but the things that I believed in, you know, specifically uh, women's rights, gun control, uh, education, funding for uh, social programs that can help prevent, you know, um, some of our more difficult, like, jail and recidivism and I it's hard for me because I see this on such a large scale and yet I recognize how important the smaller scale that supports the meso system is so important so so we had some conversations and then Nicole mm-hmm. showed up at my events mm-hmm. and we talked and we got into more in depth um, I do remember the women's rights issue you talking about how the how that affected your students, not mm-hmm. only you as a woman, but tell me mm-hmm. a little bit about, do you remember that conversation yes. and what it felt like for you with students now? Because you work with teens, right? Yes. Mental health yes. struggles with teens sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I work, so my youngest client is three and my oldest client is over 70. So I really cover the range of, of the ages. And um I'm going to take a breath before we get into this because I'm very, very passionate about this topic. Um, I feel Mm -hmm. that when people talk about women's rights um, and when you hear people who are on, you know, quote unquote, the the right, um, the politically leaning right side of things, when they talk about, you know, um, being pro-life and everything, they're not on the ground and seeing the actual effects of what that looks like. Um, when I talk to a lot of people or when I see, um, we have the the Planned Parenthood Clinic on 108th Street. When I see people protesting the Planned Parenthood Clinic, they'll have signs saying, you know, adoption is the way and everything. Any person that I've ever spoke to, they've never adopted, <laughs> um, you know, and in all of my time. So I work within, um, I work within the systems for foster care with, um, with a lot of foster care children, with a lot of children who are... Um, you know, waiting to be adopted with children who are in limbo between different families and whatnot. In all of my time and with all of the children that I have ever worked with, I have only seen one successfully adopted. And I don't think that they understand what this actually looks like and what the day-to-day lives of these children look like. We we don't have enough funding for the programs that they would need in order to successfully thrive. 
I don't think they understand what some foster homes and group homes look like for these children and what life on a day-to-day basis looks like. Um, I think the the statistic that I was looking at was that there was 424,000 children waiting to be adopted in the United States. Um, and that was before Roe v. Wade was repealed. And so I look at some of the things that my kids that I work with have experienced um, in terms of trauma. I mean, truly heartbreaking and no one really, you know, knows their stories. I do because I happen to be a counselor with them. But these things that we're seeing, people who are politically right-leaning and saying that, you know, we don't need this access to, you know, reproductive rights and we don't need access to safe, healthy abortion, I don't think they're recognizing the actual ground-level effects of what happens when that is taken away. Can you give us any examples of those stories? Can you share any of those stories without, you know, it's got to mm-hmm. be confidential. But what yeah. are, give us an example. What are we looking at here? Sure. What does life look like sure. in a foster care home sometimes? Yeah, sure. And and before I speak to that, um, a couple things, a couple caveats. One, as a counselor, obviously, I'll never share identifying information or too many specifics. Um, and so what I do share is going to be more of a... Um, Things that I've seen a couple times, things that aren't specific to one, you know, one okay. situation individually. Um, the other thing is too is that the experiences within foster homes definitely ranges. Um, I've seen some. I mean, and I will never speak poorly about foster parents. I think that they are awesome on the whole, and that they work really hard um, to provide a safe and and generally caring environment for these kids. I don't think though that there can ever be the argument that a foster home is going to provide the exact same love, affection, stability, care that um, a child, uh, I can speak to my own experience, that a child who had, you know, their biological parents in a stable biological parent loving home um, experienced. So, and that goes for adoption too. Kids who are adopted, I feel, end up end up feeling the same things when that adoption is is happy and stable and everything like a biological parent uh, living condition would be. But when you're looking at some of the homes in the foster care system, or really when you're looking at group homes too, these kids, you have to think about what they have already experienced by the time they get into that stable living condition. So a lot of these times, almost 100% of the time, these children are pulled away from their families. Much of the time, their belongings are packed into trash bags because they don't, you know, have um, appropriate suitcases and stuff. A lot of my kids have talked to me about that they just lost their belongings forever. They never saw their favorite toy again. And you think about, you know, I mean, think right now back to your favorite toy as a kid. That means something to you. That hurts to think about. Yes, that means something to you. I mean, I can picture my baby Kate doll. (laughs) And these kids talk to me about this stuff, and that's the least of the trauma, but that is traumatic. Um, They get pulled out of their homes. They're, you know, they oftentimes they'll have the trauma of whatever had preceded that, whatever CPS involvement, um, domestic violence situations, substance abuse difficulties. And as we know, that is all uh, statistically representative in um, a lot of the people who are in these positions where they had wanted access to reproductive rights. Um, Mm. 
And so once these kids are in the foster care situations or in the group home situations, um, in an ideal foster care group home, you know, you would have the stability, you would have the care, you would have access to all of your basic needs. But these kids are even in that ideal situation, which is not always happening, to be honest. But even in that ideal situation, what many of these kids are experiencing is this limbo of when am I going to see my parents? Are my parents going to come to visitations? Am I ever going to be reunited? Um, you know, the court gets to say what, what happens to these kids. They feel powerless. They feel hopeless. Um, and ultimately, they don't feel loved. <laughs> and a child who feels unloved is going to experience the world in a way um, that that paints who they are as people for a very long time. And even once they're in a stable, loving home, it takes years, if not forever, to work back on that trauma. And that's an individual case. This is quite literally, in my opinion, an epidemic across the United States. And just working with the children that I have worked with in the small sphere of the world that I can actually touch, um, it's really scary to me. And as a counselor, we like to talk about how, you know, ideally counseling would not be political. You know, ideally counseling would be um, a sphere, you know, that's separated and isn't affected by politics, but it's inherently affected by politics. I mean, I see these children without access to the kind of social services that we need to be providing for them. And then, you know, we look at other things such as difficulty um, in the healthcare system, difficulty with people getting access to, um, you know, safe birth control options, us having repealed women's rights in many states in the United States. Um, the actual results of this is that we will have more children going into the foster care system, um, you know, getting churned within the CPS system. Um, and we're going to be seeing more and more of these difficult conditions for these children, which in my opinion, I mean, we already cannot handle. Their children are not getting adopted incredibly consistently. Um, they are struggling to find foster care, foster care home placements. There's, you know, limited availability of those. Same thing with group homes. And these children are falling through the cracks. And I see it on a nearly daily basis. And it breaks my heart. I remember you describing it as a river. Mm, mm -hmm. Tell us, how did you say yeah. that again? It was just so powerful. There's this um, quote by Desmond Tutu, and if I try to say it right now, I'm going to butcher it, but that um, I believe is the original person who had kind of put forth the idea. But in my job all of the time, I see these these children struggling. Um, and when it when you're experiencing it, it looks like they, they're in a river. And not just the kids that I work with, pretty much everybody, but in this specific instance, the kids. Um, in the river and that they're, you know, they're struggling to swim. And my job as a counselor, the best thing that I can do for them right now, I'm coming to find, is throw them a life jacket. Um, I can throw them a life jacket. I can maybe teach them a couple techniques to help them know how to swim, to hopefully survive the circumstances. But we need to be going back to the root of things and figuring out why they're falling in and stop them from falling in in the first place. Before I entered counseling um, in my, you know, firehearted young child idea of what counseling was going to be, I thought I was going to come out and I was going to be able to save everyone. And, you know, I think a lot of us counselors can relate to that, this idea of wanting to save things. And I'm coming to realize that the issues so often fall within the macro system that 
instead of trying to, you know, bring these people out of the river, we've got to stop them from falling in in the first place. I remember you passionately telling me that story. Mm -hmm. Like, I can just barely get them out of this river and Mm -hmm. we're going to be throwing a whole bunch more in. Mm -hmm. And that is just not right. Mm -hmm. And I know you all can't see me, but I'm tearing up right now because (laughs) this is what Nicole does. This is how passionate she is and how articulate she is to help us all understand how serious this is. Mm -hmm. And so when you were chasing me down, boy, that day, I... uh, (laughs) You know, it was those kinds of stories that spurred me on to want to win, to want to get to Madison, to want to do more. Mm-hmm. I was riding on the bus today with my grandson. I went to mm-hmm. the little field trip over at the art museum okay. with the kids, you know, and he's in K-5 in Wauwatosa. And on the way back, the teacher, we were talking with the, with the teacher, and she said, Luann, you got to get on the school board. And I said, well, just so you know, I have had a lot of ex- I've been mm-hmm. on school boards for 10 years, and I we were talking about how she's just desperate. And I said, well, if I was on the school board, what is it that you would like from the school mm-hmm. board? What would make a difference to you? And she said, we need help with the social side of things. Mm-hmm. We need counselors. Yes. And that was out of the blue. I didn't expect her to say that. I thought she'd say she didn't mention teacher pay is a little bit off a little lately too, mm, but mm-hmm. it was the first thing was social social yes. support for these kids. Yes. So that really reaffirms what you're telling me. Even she, from a teacher standpoint, is feeling the same way. Like we're just not doing enough for these kids mm-hmm. in the social emotional area. Mm-hmm. So that was what you were really reaching out to my heart. And then you connected it so well to women's rights because right now we are forcing Mm -hmm. women to have babies in this Mm -hmm. state because of that 1849 law that doesn't allow reproductive choice Mm -hmm. um, unless you have money and then you're able to Mm -hmm. get out of this state and go somewhere so yeah you know throwing more kids in the river is what we will end up doing and I think a huge part of this for me too and I think you and I have talked about this before is that it's not just women, right? Women implies 18 plus. Um, oh, yeah, okay. I, I really struggle because, um, particularly because we, so we just voted on the um, abortion issue in, in Wisconsin. We just had a vote on that. And when I was reading it, I was, and I knew this logically, but when I saw it on paper, I was taken aback because it said, you know, there are, in Wisconsin, there are no exceptions for health of the mother, no exceptions for rape, and no exceptions for incest. Um, as a counselor, as you can imagine, I experience every one of those issues with my clients. And a lot of them that I'm experiencing them with, these quite literal children who are experiencing these things, and I'm including rape and I'm including incest, these awful, awful things that exist within our society and often sometimes result in pregnancies, these kids are experiencing it and then they don't have access the kids to, are safe, pregnant. Yes, to safe reproductive care. We are forcing children oh, to have children yeah. and thus we are initiating further the cycle of generational trauma mm-hmm. and putting more people into a system that already is not functioning the way that it could in order to sustainably help people thrive. I ran into another young woman at a door when she met me, was so excited, uh, and it was women's rights. Mm-hmm. And she was, a, you know, she, she was 
older than she looked, but she looked pretty young and was so passionate like you were. And then her mom came out after I was moving on to the next door and came out and said, you've given her so much hope. Well, I ended up calling her up mm -hmm. and saying, do you want to come and do doors for me, with me? And she did. So I found out her story. Her story was similar in a way that she had gotten pregnant, had her baby and had the baby took care of it for a couple of years and they took the baby away from her mm -hmm. and she didn't get into the why that happened but she mm -hmm. felt so passionate that this idea that you're going to force someone to have a baby and then have to mm -hmm. give it up she felt that pain mm -hmm. and described that to me and then I had another woman who had gotten pregnant she had a 19 year old daughter mm -hmm. or something and she was quite young when she got pregnant and she said I chose to have my daughter but what if I had been forced to I don't mm -hmm. know how I would have felt about yeah. that mm -hmm. so that story came up when I was running in different ways mm -hmm. um, but you mm -hmm. you know helping the public understand what this is all about and how it really affects people mm -hmm. is helpful to getting the kind of change we want to see in Wisconsin so absolutely yeah it's painful to hear your hear you talk about your kids <laughs> um, I know uh, providing the kind of opportunities you want to see for your kids uh, is important for us to do. Mm -hmm. So um, I know I came from a broken home, so I didn't have that, but I had resources. My grandparents took care of us. Mm -hmm. um, I can't imagine what that would have been like had I lost both parents and had to go in on somewhere on my own, mm -hmm. you know, and, and had to had to do something about that. So what is it that you would like to see us do? What is it? You know, if we got more resources, mm -hmm. what would we do with it? And where would we put it? And maybe talk a little bit about the role schools play. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I I have a lot of ideas. I'm trying to put them together in a, a cohesive way. Um, I think one of the main things that we can do is start putting more money into um, education and pre-education programs. Uh, back when I was in college, and I'm going to butcher the statistics, so don't quote me on it, but um, I remember reading this really powerful study that was talking about how every dollar that you put into um, both socio-emotional learning and pre-education programs, so, you know, pre-K, daycares, um, things that can help teach kids skills that they, they build upon for the rest of their lives, every dollar that you put in comes back more than eightfold. Um, in terms of reduced uh, reduced recidivism rates, in terms of reduced issues with um, law enforcement, in terms of actual community output and people, um, you know, directing their own resources, their own work and time and everything, and being successful citizens, how that contributes back to the overall well-being of the community. And I think that that's probably one of the best things that we can do, for sure, in terms of utilizing our resources, making sure that our um, yeah, our public programs providing, you know, care to people of all ages, making sure that that is something that we are devoting our time and our energy to. And... Any, I truly anything that we can do for socio emotional learning for these kids, I think, is huge. We also need to, as as you had touched on before, we need to make sure that we are paying our teachers appropriately and that we're providing appropriate resources for them because they are such a backbone of who our kids become as human beings um, and and as community members in the future. And it's hard because you can look at these situations on an individual level. And you can point out things that went wrong. But again, you kind of have to pull back. Um, and instead of looking at the person swimming in the river, you have to kind of pull back and see how did they fall in there in the first place, right? And that's when it becomes more abstract, more political, a bit more confusing. And you think about more so 
what were the situations that had set up these people for failure in the first place, right? What are the oppressive regimes? What are, what's the racism? What are a few of these? Keep, the, oh, is it, those are it, right? Truly. Oppressive it's, regimes. It's, oppressive regimes, regimes. You have racism. Like, yeah, okay, racism. I mean, just the, the big isms, right? Racism, misogyny, oppressive regimes, transphobia, all of these things that affect people in this, both the, these microscopic ways, but also the ways that it all interacts together to disadvantage them. Um, and I think the difficulty is because it's hard to put your finger on that and say, well, that specifically is the reason because it all works together. You know, if you um, if I ever was to do a case conceptualization on any one of the people that I work with, um, you can see individual difficulties. But you also have to pull back and look at what were these things that were put into place before this person really was even cognizant that led them down this path? Like... Um, so like not having access to, um, public services, not having access to healthcare, um, situations where their parents didn't have proper education, women's rights, their, you know, their parents not having access to, um, the healthcare and the, the, honestly, the education necessary. Um, this is probably a tangent, so I won't go on it all the way, but we talk about how, um, you know, there's a lot of debate about should, you know, sexual health be included in a public education. Well, you're looking at, what happens when it isn't comprehensive enough? You look at what happens when people don't know, um, don't know the you know the ins and outs of it, and and how to how to prevent an unwanted pregnancy, and then God forbid it should happen, you know what do you do then in a state such as Wisconsin? So it's all very interconnected and abstract and confusing in a lot of ways. And people are pushing back on that kind of sex mm-hmm. education in our schools. Mm-hmm. I think in part because they're so afraid of the transgender and the the gay. I think we're kind of getting over being so afraid of gays anymore. I think that's really accepted. But the transgender thing, I heard a lot about that, you know, so we can't teach human mm-hmm. growth and development, which is what they call it. Sure. We can't teach that in our schools because we're sex. What's it got? It's got a name. We're teaching, we're sexting them or something. We're, we're um, not sexting. It's called, you know, there's a name for it where we're teaching kids in school to become transgender or to, hmm. to, ch- to mm-hmm. want to change their gender. And sure. that is, from all of my evidence, not happening. But it's, it's causing the public to not realize what really is going on. We've had human growth and development forever in our schools. Sure. And it's, like you said, with what we're teaching now, and with the type of resources we have in our schools now, this is what we're getting. Mm-hmm. So is the answer to cut that? Is the answer to take it all away? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think you're right. And Nicole didn't just sit home when she met me. I mean, she got involved. She came to my events. She told me the stories so that I was well-informed, so that by the time I got to Madison, I was going to be ready to be a voice <laughs> for her. Not only did she come to mine, we had Tammy Baldwin come to my house. Mm-hmm. And guess who came to that event? Nicole and her friends. <laughs> Came and had a conversation mm-hmm. with Tammy Baldwin because you see, uh, we have to speak up. This whole um, podcast series is about action. It's about mm-hmm. giving people hope about what things can we do and um, giving people the tools, how to be civil. And yet civility isn't passive. Civility doesn't sit back and allow these children to fall into that river if there's mm-hmm. something we can do to change that. Sure. So how, how can we... Um, what can we do? And you have made a pretty good case 
for supporting the initiatives that someone like Representative Robin Vining is introducing in the governor's budget right now. So there mm-hmm. is one thing you could all do is check on that. Mm-hmm. It's going through the process right now of whether or not we'll be able to get these millions of dollars for mental health support through that budget process so that we can reach more of these kids, pull them out, mm-hmm. and keep kids by educating more through our public school systems, we can keep kids from falling in as well. I mean, there are mm-hmm. things we can do yeah. if we have the public will to do that. Definitely. So I can't speak more highly of how great it is to have you out there, uh, Nicole, and talking about these things. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into counseling, if you're comfortable with that, and why you went in this direction? <laughs> sure. sure, yeah, definitely. You're not that long out of school. <laughs> <laughs> sure, so... Um, I actually knew what I wanted to do since I was about 11 or 12 years really? old. Yeah, what? yeah, I was really lucky with that. I always had a direction since I was 11 or, oh, wow. or 12, and, and I followed basically exactly what I had planned How back did you then. know that? Tell us about that. How so, did you know? So I had... Um, I had a really rough middle and high school experience, and I don't. I don't think I'm unique in saying that. I think that's a pretty common. Uh, I hear that a lot from people, uh, and like looking back on it, it, you know, it's it's easy to say that, you know, it's something that everybody experiences, and I think unfortunately in a lot of ways it is. But it was hugely defining for me. So I had experienced bullying from I would say like the middle of sixth grade until until I graduated, um, until I graduated high school. And that it came in, you know, cycles and it got worse and it got a little bit better. Um, and my parents tried to help and everything. And we tried to work with the school board and it was all, it was a fight the whole time. Now, what, what had been incredibly important for me, um, my parents had met with, with the, you know, principal at the time in the middle school and with my teachers and stuff. And my parents realized pretty soon on, um, that I, we weren't being listened to. I wasn't being listened to. Um, in fact, I had been blamed for some of, um, you know, some of the interactional dynamics. Cause up until sixth grade, I was this like very loud, energetic, like beep bopping around kid. <laughs> Happy go lucky. Exactly, and yeah. then and then and then what happened? What was the everything, bullying? everything what did changed. They, what did um, what did they do to you? Yeah, so a a lot. Uh, it's it's hard. Basically, um, in my middle school at the time, the the bullying was tolerated. It was allowed, and because I was a figure skater, I was gone a lot of the time. And so what I remember so clearly is that I felt looking back at it, like they needed a scapegoat. And because I was gone much of the time, it, I was an easy target for that. Who's so, they? Who's they? Um, <laughs> that's that's perhaps something <laughs> you and I could talk about a but little later. Name names. I, I mean, was it your peers or was peers, it teachers? Yes. Oh, okay. No, the, no, the it was peers. your peers. Yes, okay. the peers. Well, okay. and it's so funny. Actually, yep. in my groups that I talk about nowadays, when I'm talking with kids in, their, in the middle schools um, that I work at, I talk to them about... I remember the exact names of these kids. I remember what they would say to me. I remember what they did. I remember everything. I'm 26 years old. I'm not past it. Um, and it, it's it's been defining, you know, a, a defining part of my life. And anyways, I use that as a way to talk to these kids about um, bullying can happen to anybody. And you need to be careful about the words that you are saying right now. Because I'm 26 years old. It happened more than half of my lifetime ago. And I can hear it like it was yesterday. Um, so 
Yeah, it, it, it's, you know, it started like in the middle of, of sixth grade. And I remember, um, so I, I, as I was saying, I was, you know, a really happy-go-lucky kid up until that point. And then everything shifted on a dime. And my my mom had wrote that letter. She'll, uh, I should read it to you later. You can read about it. But um, I remember her talking to me about how I, my personality did a 180. And all of a sudden, like, she didn't see my eyes look up anymore because I was just staring at the ground and I was hunched over. And when we drove past my school, she could see that I turned inside of myself and I was just a different human being. And so when my parents had talked to, I remember my, my sixth grade writing teacher and was talking about, um, you know, that, that I was a different person and that things, you know, aren't going well. Well, the writing teacher had pointed out, well, well she's so quiet, you know, that implying that I was the reason for having this, these issues in the first place. But, you know, it, there was, it was not bi-directional. There was this, uh, there was definitely a way that this had gone and I hadn't always been so internalized. So anyways, it was a system that tacitly supported bullying, in my opinion. Don't, did they have that PBIS system in your school at that hmm. time. I, you it's know, some yeah. kind of a system for treating other kids mm-hmm. good, <laughs> so behavioral I, something. Sure. So I see that in the schools that I work at now. Um, I couldn't have it. Back I then? can't tell you. I know that they. We had maybe one or two, and I, I can even remember this. I remember we had like one or two seminars on, you know, not bullying. And I remember, I can remember so clearly being in seventh grade in the seminar and being like, maybe this will be it, you know? Maybe this will be the thing that changes things. And then I can remember this devastating feeling as I walked through the seventh grade hallway Um listening to kids make fun of this bullying seminar because I knew that I was going to be the one targeted after. Like, it was my fault that we were having a bullying seminar and, like, it just doubled down. Oh, man. So they would, it's how they would talk to you. Put you down. Did they call you names? Did they uh, yeah, everything. Laugh um, at you. I remember they made behind a... your back. Everything. I remember yeah. they made a... Um, they made a I hate Nicole Otto MySpace page, I think Are it was, or Facebook kidding? page. I can't remember which one it was. Yeah, no, I remembered that. And the school didn't do. We talked to them. them. <laughs> yeah, we talked to them about it. Oh, um, wow. And I, yeah, and I mean, but mind you, it it went on, it went on, and there's a lot that I could talk about with it. I remember even even sophomore year of high school, like I didn't even have a Twitter and I was being told by other people that people were talking about me on that. And it was like, I I don't talk to anybody anymore. Like I don't speak in school anymore. Why would anyone be talking about me? Um, it was just, it was a lot easier for people to, to have a scapegoat for that. Yeah, yeah. I, the here's the disconnect, mm-hmm. folks. I was on her school board at the time. I got on in 2013, I believe, mm-hmm. and then I was president, I think, in 2014 and 2015, mm-hmm. and probably gave Nicole her diploma. I didn't know that was going on mm-hmm. in our schools, and her mom wrote a letter mm-hmm. to the district. That I never, I don't remember seeing. Yeah. And it should have gotten right to the board, a letter like that yeah. about bullying or what your school experience was sure. like. Sure, So and that we can fix it. And at least your mom tried. Yes, she she really did. Um, and I'll show you that letter yeah, I'd later. Like to You'll see have that. to read it. But um, 
yeah, my mom. My mom has been a consistent advocate and, for yeah, me. Yeah, and she sent the a message there that it's not she, you; it's the system. She did. It's um, the system because I remember her. She had been thinking about writing a letter for a while, um, for many reasons. But there had been a suicide in. Um, I don't know what what school it was, but there had been a suicide because of bullying. And my mom knew it was by a thin margin that I made it through those years. She she oh, knew that. Wow. And um, coming back to the original question you had asked me, that is why I'm a counselor. Because I worked with a counselor who I worked with her on and off um, starting in, in um, sixth grade when these bullying things happened. And like I said, they continued until... I graduated high school, so I worked with her on and off to handle this situation. I have no no apprehension in saying she absolutely saved my life. She absolutely saved my life. Her and the advocacy of my mother, um, at, like I have them to thank for you know being alive today, for you know having uh, the ability to make a difference for kids experiencing similar things to me. And so, in sixth grade, when I started working with this person and I started noticing the care that she provided me and um, her ability to help me, even if I couldn't change my circumstances, at least cope with them um, and not let them change who I was in my heart. I knew then that I wanted to, I wanted to be a, become a counselor. And so since then, it's just I've just aligned my life in that direction, and it's been really sure. cool. Sure, yeah. that is a really cool story. Mm-hmm. That's really amazing. Were were these counselors from school or were they from... No. You know what's really interesting? Yes. So she was private. And you know what's really interesting is that she spoke with my mom when I was getting counseling for these bullying problems. And she told me specifically that she sees an inordinate amount of children from Whitnall from bullying. Is that right? Yep. And she does not work. She does not work with Whitnell specific kids. Yes. But she said she sees an inordinate amount of children from that school district. That's not that long ago. For bullying. No. Well, we have, you know, Whitnall is seen as a pretty good district, but Mm -hmm. that's a testimony to how kids fall in because we're just Mm -hmm. not believing that this bullying is happening and Mm -hmm. to the effect that it's having on kids. Um, I hear that a lot. I hear us talk about it a lot, but I don't know mm-hmm. what we're doing. And I know when I was on the board, they had this behavioral program that they put mm-hmm. in place to hopefully stop that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know how successful that was, but yeah. it is, I I am hearing now it's really become a priority, especially since COVID, that kids have really taken some social emotional steps backwards. But, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't that long ago you were in school and it was difficult for some kids. And it it doesn't have to be if we put the resources in place mm-hmm. uh, to to help deal with some of these issues. I think we can change things, don't you? I think we can. <laughs> yes. So the hope is, but you said something early on that you you know we started this conversation with how awful politics is mm-hmm. and how you know you weren't liking how people were treating each other. Mm-hmm. And I came in as a, let's talk about civility. What, did you believe me? <laughs> did you like that part of my campaign? <laughs> you know, I and I struggle with it because I can see, even in my own self and, and speaking honestly, I can see this um, ambivalence about, about civility. Um, because on, on the one hand, Ideally, I, I mean, I didn't like how people were treating each other poorly, and I didn't like how each, how people were so volatile and hostile. Um, at the same time, I can feel that volatility and that hostility in myself at times. Um, that's why when you had asked me to canvas, I said, I don't know that I'm, I'm the person for you, because I'm very passionate 
about about these difficulties that I live with, that I work with and live with on a daily basis. I'm very passionate about those things. Um, and so I just to be completely honest with you, I still struggle with that ambivalence. Um, you had just said something. Civility is not passive. That line. It's not passive. Yes, resonates with me. And I mm-hmm. think I think as a um a young person living in this world trying to navigate and also being on the ground floor of some of these really difficult issues, I struggle with um kind of going between feeling like, okay, well, well we all need to be a lot, you know, nicer to each other, so we should all be kinder and then going but I'm angry. <laughs> I'm angry about these things that are happening and we should be angry. And I see in my generation and the generation beneath us, my, my between, beneath my generation, that, that push and pull between those things, trying to somehow coalesce this idea of being angry and justifiably angry about the things that are going on around us and advocating for that without being hurtful. And I I don't have the answer for that. I think it'll come for you like it did for me. It comes in finding a way to create the change. Mm -hmm. It's it certainly doesn't come if you don't try. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you do it wrong, you get out there and you do it wrong. At least you did something. And if it didn't get the result you want, you can step back and look at it. First of all, forgive yourself because Mm -hmm. it's still better to go out there and speak up and do it wrong. I just did that this week. I posted something on Facebook, totally didn't think about the audience, didn't think about my tone Mm -hmm. because I'm very frustrated about, Mm -hmm. you know, the village buying a mental health, Mm -hmm. I mean, a a health building that's Mm -hmm. two stories, you know, that whole issue that I don't think a person in a wheelchair, well, they'll have to fix it. But I was so emotional about it and and then I had, then I got some interesting feedback on Facebook mm-hmm. and I went back and changed my post because it was like, yeah. And I thanked people. I said, yeah, you're right. The, my tone was off and I was putting information out there that wasn't telling the whole story right about sure. what was going on. So I had to change it, but at least I took that, you, you got to pay attention to that anger and do something about sure. it and, mm-hmm. and turn that into some sort of an action, be it a phone call or email or just something figure out something you can do about that Mm -hmm. to um change things yeah knocking on doors when you don't feel ready (laughs) maybe not but you came to my events you made sure that people know what's going on Mm -hmm. and that's a big 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 deal to me it was a very big deal and it's it's so civility you still have your feelings but civility is where it's not um, a contest. Mm-hmm. I'm here to get you to think like I do, and I'm going to be in your face, and I'm going to call you names, mm-hmm. and I'm going to run negative ads against you mm-hmm. just so I can win, just so I can get power. To me, that's what's lacking. And and the fighting, the political maneuvering for power mm-hmm. is what's turning people off. So when you said that early on, I thought, yep, uh, we the way we treat each other, our young people do not like any of this. Mm-hmm. So then what does it look like if we're civil? That doesn't mean we sit back, but it means we can have passionate, honest conversations. Mm-hmm. And we can even not agree. Mm-hmm. But if we have sincerely listened to each other, I think in the end, that's what makes the difference. If you feel like you've been heard, and if you were able to set back mm-hmm. your own anger and listen, that does make a difference. Mm-hmm. And... That's what I would just encourage you to do. Keep doing what you're doing. Getting out there and talking to people and 
coming and getting to events. The next election will be in the spring. I'm not sure what's coming up there, but you can definitely get involved in school board elections. Mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. I made sure (laughs) I had my voice known. Are you in the Whitnall School District now where you moved to? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, that was an interesting dynamic there in the last (laughs) election. So, you know, we have to get people elected that understand and that will do something about, Mm -hmm. you know, the things that matter, the preventative things that matter for Mm -hmm. kids. So I've always been a big proponent of that. I always, you know, when I was talking to people at doors, I said, are kids not learning because of the grown-ups in their lives or are they really cognitively disabled? You know, they can't learn. No, they can learn. It's the grown-ups in their lives. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a great way to end this session. Then if it's the grown-ups in our lives, and I used to do consulting with school boards, and so we would had some exercises to get people to think about what their expectations were mm-hmm. and just to determine if kids aren't learning, what is it that, is keeping them from learning. Well, mm-hmm. maybe they didn't have enough food the night before. Maybe their parents are, you know, divorced. Maybe mm-hmm. this, maybe that. Maybe they have the teacher doesn't have enough resources or enough counselors in that classroom. Mm-hmm. And so those kids aren't learning the way they could. So it could be a combination of things that are going, you know, then, you know, when you think about why aren't kids learning the way they should, if you have higher expectations mm-hmm. and it's about the grown-ups, that should give us all hope. And if you have hope, then, like the persister said in our last session, and uh, it was fabulous, she says, hope means we have work to do. Mm-hmm. And that's where it goes. When you believe we can change these things, when you believe, oh, it's about the grown-ups, we can do something about poverty, maybe we can't totally solve world hunger right now, but we can chip off a little bit here. Mm-hmm. We can get some more money right now through the budget so that Nicole's kids... Mm-hmm. can do a better job in Milwaukee. So I was hoping to try to get Robin Vining on next to talk about that, what she's doing at oh, the wonderful. state level, mm-hmm. so that I'll do my part to help you out. How does that sound, Nicole? That sounds good to me. <laughs> does that sound good? <laughs> yes. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on, and thank you to our listeners for taking the time. Uh, we We appreciate you, and I look forward to... Maybe you're going to be one of those people that changes the system in the future by stepping up to a higher level, maybe even running someday. You never know. <laughs> you never know. But thank you so much, Nicole, for coming on. Thank you for having me. Oh, Joanne. you're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. So there's one more thing that we want to talk about here uh, that we didn't get to with Nicole, and that's gun control. Tell us what your thoughts are on that and how that affects your work that you do. Yeah, so in some of the areas that I'm in in Milwaukee, mind you, across the United States, I think issues with gun control are rampant. But if you turn on the television at any point in time to look at Milwaukee news, almost all of the time you are seeing uh, issues with gun violence um, and even gun accidents a lot of the time. So what I have been seeing in the schools that I work at and working with the the kids in our sessions, um, there are a lot of times where we are doing our counseling sessions in, you know, in a confidential room and everything. And you might hear a car backfire outside and we pause for a moment, me and these, and these children that I'm working with, and we wait to hear if it's going to be a code red. We wait to hear if, if that was, a car backfiring outside or if we're about to have a shooting within the school and you know I'm there when we're doing the shooting drills with the kids and you know I remember being 
being a kid, and we had these much less often back when I was, you know, a child in school. And when we would have these shooting drills, I remember we would be really scared. Um, you know, like, is this going to happen? And the kids that I work with, the attitude much of the time is not, is this going to happen? Is when is this going to happen? And it's this, this fear that isn't as explicit as when I was a child, because it it's, wasn't common when I was a child. It was something to be afraid of because it wasn't as common. And nowadays, it's almost a fact of life when they talk about it. Um, I can say I personally know, I would say upwards of 10 to 12 people, whether, you know, through the kids that I work with or the kids that I work with themselves, um, who were either injured or killed by gun violence in the last year. Um, much of the headlines, you know, were involved with with people in those situations or, um, you know, touched by those situations personally. And it is the most devastating thing that these children are seeing this gun violence and this experience of weapons on the street and within the school, rather than as a tragedy, more so as a fact of life. And we need to be working to change that because this can't be acceptable. That's a fatalistic attitude. Yes. That it's a fact of life. It is. And Dr. Catherine Wilkinson is working on that. And that Mm -hmm. was one of the things I took away from our podcast. Mm -hmm. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, go back. Because we have to change our fatalistic attitude first. So Nicole's given us a lot of good things to keep these kids from falling in the river. And simple things, really. Stopping bullying in our schools. I mean, it's not easy. Mm-hmm. Stopping bullying. Healthcare. Getting choice back for women. Their reproductive mm-hmm. rights. Getting those back. Getting more counselors. Mm-hmm. Right? And getting guns under control. All of these things could make a big difference for our kids and for the counselors like Nicole of the world who in order to change things. Absolutely. So if you know of any of those initiatives, challenge your own thinking, make sure that you pick up the phone, make some phone calls, the budget session's going on right now. And if we can get the Republicans to put the things in that our Governor Tony Evers has put in, we'll go a long way toward those issues in the next round. Absolutely. So I hope that gives you some hope, Nicole. <laughs> For sure. Go to those budget listening sessions. They're also happening right now. So I'm showing up, you can show up, I'm doing those kinds of things, and uh, you can do that too. So thanks. I'm glad you took a few extra minutes. Thanks, Nicole.